so good to be with you. I want to talk to you this afternoon about leadership in specifically one area, and that is conflict resolution. Um, as le- oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so it's applicable? It's affecting? It was, so our basic disposition in conflict is incredibly important and incredibly telling as to how effective of a leader we're going to be. Um, there's a way you can be right but be wrong at the top of your voice. Okay? So, so, so the, the basic test of ministry in the first century was not did it line up with the Bible. They didn't have a Bible. The basic test of ministry in the first century was did that line up with the disposition of Messiah? The disposition of Messiah was defined as Exodus 34. He is the compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiveness God. There's a tension that leaders have to carry, and that, and it's not enviable. It's not easy. If it was easy, everybody would be a leader, right? But, but the, the tension is this. How can I lead an environment with clear expectations and built-in accountability while keeping my disposition soft in conflict. This is something that's not easy to navigate, but I have a couple thoughts about it. Leadership is really basically defined as your ability to have clear expectations with built-in accountability. If If you have clear expectations and no accountability, you have a frustrated organization. Because you have a lot of expectations, and it doesn't matter if someone does or doesn't do their job. There's no accountability for it, and that that will frustrate your organization. If you have built-in accountability with not clear expectations, you're also going to have a frustrated organization because people don't know when they're hitting the mark. So the issue is the tension between that, and and all of that comes times with conflict. And so I want to talk to you about that, particularly if you're leading a volunteer organization, Volunteer organizations are very difficult to lead because no one's getting paid. Look, if everybody's on payroll and you can just fire them, that's a whole nother deal. But you're talking about conflict between volunteers. It's a whole different ballgame, which leads me to the cross and resurrection. The cross and resurrection should not be something we believe in. It should be something more profound than that. The cross and resurrection should be something that fundamentally shifts the way we see everything. The, the, the idea of, well, you know, I believe in the cross and resurrection, good for you. But the truth of it is, is that where we are in our life at this point, belief in the cross and resurrection, what demons believe? So like, like belief in the cross and resurrection, whatever. I mean, that's a good starting point, but my God, it should be more profound than that. The cross and resurrection should not be an event that happened. It should be an event that fundamentally shifts the way we see all other events after that. And in that moment, is something, which leads me to this. The cross is not something that has one meaning. It's something that defies meaning. For, for the God of the universe to humble himself, allow himself to take on human form, to be executed at the hands of a local government for the benefit of all humanity, is not something that gives us meaning. It is something that transcends meaning. It's not loving. It's something that redefines what love is. This is, this is something that this is profound. Found. This is why, this is why you could preach 40 messages on the cross and resurrection, never repeat yourself, and never be wrong. Because the cross and resurrection doesn't have one meaning. This is why the New Testament writers struggle to find language around this. Like, like this, look, the cross surprised everyone. 
If you were a follower of Jesus, then you expected him to take over Rome. When Rome succeeds in killing him, that was surprising. What was more surprising was resurrection. Because in your experience, dead people stay dead, right? As as a matter of fact, the, the, the root word in Hebrew for resurrection and the root words for surprise share the same root. And that makes sense. Like, if I died today and you came to my funeral on Tuesday and I showed up at your church next Sunday, surprise sort of cuts it. And so the New Testament writers went to great lengths to put language around the eventual nature of the cross and resurrection, which is why one place it's called the forgiveness of sins. And we say, yes, amen, we embrace that. Another place it's called the cancellation of debt. Another place it's called the in-your-face confrontation to principalities and powers. In another place it's called the confrontation of oppression. In another place it's called this. In another place, it's called exaltation through humility. Huh. In another place, it's this. So, so in, in this afternoon session, I just want to spend time on one. And, I, and the reason I chose this one is because I don't think it gets enough play time. And, and I want to be clear about this. I'm not doing this at the expense of the truth of all the other ones. We embrace all of them. But this is one session. And so when you have one session, you got to choose one. So I chose this one because I don't think it gets enough playtime. This is Paul trying to put language around the cross and resurrection to a world that wasn't quite sure what it all meant. If you could bring up that first slide. Is that, okay, here we go. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so by making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, the context of this passage is not between us and God. It's, a, it's, it's because Jesus acted first to make peace with people who are hostile to him, then the fundamental shift in worldview should be, if Jesus acted first to make peace while we were hostile to God, then our shift in worldview should be Christians of all people should always be the ones intentionally acting first to make peace and to end hostility. What else would be more compelling than that? There is nothing less compelling in the world than two Christians having a fight on the internet about something stupid. That is just uncompelling. Let, let me illustrate this with a story that changed my life. Um, a, a few years ago, I, I was invited to, do, um, uh, to study in Israel with a top history expert. So he, um, he rang me. Um, what had happened was is I had spoke at a conference with his son-in-law. His son-in-law gave him my teaching, and he rang me and said, listen, um, we'd like to invite you to come speak at our synagogue in Jerusalem, and as a part of your payment, um, I will take you around and teach you history 14 hours a day. Um, he said, let me be clear. I don't do tourist tours. I do academic tours. So you got to be okay with academia, right? And I was like, oh, no, perfect. perfect. Why don't I just come and you teach me? And then skip the part where I speak to people about something they know more than me about, right? And so I, I went, and 14 hours a day, we went around Israel, and he taught me history. And um, this was, I think it was the first thing he showed me. 
he showed me something that was so amazing that I responded with exclamation. Now, he speaks good English, but English isn't his first language. So the way I responded with exclamation was, as I went, really? Really? Now, I was amazed. He thought I wanted to argue. Now, here's a guy that has forgotten more about Jewish history than I will ever know. He is the expert. He could have decimated me in an argument had I wanted to argue. I didn't. I was amazed. But here's what's important. He thought I wanted to argue. And I'll never forget his response. I'll be 95 years old and won't forget this. Here's the guy that could have won the argument easily. And here's his response. Oh, shame. Peace between us is the most important thing. If one of us needs to be wrong, let it be me. I was confused. <laughs> which made it worse. Because my response to that was, what? <laughs> he said, oh, peace between us is the most important thing. If one of us needs to be wrong, please let it be me. The world needs to see us at peace more than I need to be right about anything. If an outsider looked at our conversation, let Jesus be glorified. I don't need to be right about anything more than I need the world to see us at peace because of the finished work of Jesus. And I said, I said Ari, did you think I was arguing with you? He said, weren't you? I said, okay, first, I apologize that my tone of voice might have made it seem that way. Please forgive me. That's first. Second, let's just get this straight. This is day one. We're going to do this for four days. Um, we're in Israel, and you're the history expert. I won't be disagreeing with you about anything. That's, that's second. And if I did, the problem is me. I said, I was amazed, man. He said, were you amazed? I said, I was amazed, Ari. I was amazed. He said, oh, so you weren't disagreeing with me. And I said, no, we're in Jerusalem. This is Jewish history. You're the expert. No, I wasn't disagreeing with you. He goes, oh, good. <laughs> he goes, because I knew I was right about that, but my goodness. <laughs> he said, Shane, the world needs to see us at peace. He said, if, if outsiders look at our conversation... May they see us at peace. Now, that's a man that understands that the cross and resurrection isn't just the forgiveness of sins. It's the end of hostility. Now, now this, is, this is also, Jesus talks about this. This is his first sermon, third line in. Check this. Ooh. Blessed are the peacemakers. Oh, for they're the sons of God. Really? Is, is Jesus allowed to do that? Oh, by the way, if I ask you if Jesus is allowed to do something, the answer is yes. So let's practice that. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Yes. Like we sing songs like, I am a child of God. Are we? So how are we doing with the peacemaker thing?
If the world sees how we handle conflict, would they go, that's children of God right there? Or would we rather be right on Facebook? Oh, and <clears throat> unless you think this is a one-off sentence, 34 verses later in the same sermon, you've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. Twice in the same sermon, just reading it, three minutes apart, he makes the same point. Now listen, I do not wanna solve all the theological complexities of this because it's not my point. Let's back off and just admit this, that our basic disposition in conflict is incredibly important to Jesus. My question is, is if the world around us saw how we treat each other in conflict, would they go, you know what, right or wrong, I'm not sure, but those are children of God right there. Now, to understand this, I want, I want you to see something. It's verse 43. I want everybody to mark that in your head. It's only important for later, okay? It's verse 43. And I'm not gonna do something weird and crazy around numbers. They added that later. It's just it's verse 43, and that's gonna be important in about 15 minutes or so, 20 minutes or so, okay? So, so this, it, this requires us to understand two things. One is how hostility works. The other is then how peacemaking works. Now, there's a great story in the Old Testament that illustrates how hostility works, and it's the story of a guy named Samson, all right? Now, it's quite a long story, so I'm gonna just tell it, and then I'm gonna read a few passages, a few verses from it, but I'll, I'll tell it okay. So there, there was this guy named Samson, and he was out of control. He was an absolute lunatic. I mean, he had no regard for the law, no regard for respect for his parents, no regard for decency. He ate food out of dead things, this guy is an absolute maniac, right? And he, and he falls in love with this Philistine woman. He comes back and tells his parents, hey, I've fallen in love with a Philistine woman. His parents go, please don't do that. She worships other gods. Please don't do that. He goes, I don't care what you think. I love who I love. Well, later, he sneaks out of his house to see her behind their back. Evidently, he runs into a lion. Now, if you're gonna sneak out of your parents' home to see your girlfriend, a good way to get caught is to run into a lion, right? Now, evidently, he was strong enough and trained enough and weaponized enough to kill the lion. So he kills the lion, sees her, comes back. Later, he's going back to see her, and evidently, this lion's carcass was still laying there, and evidently, the bees had taken nest in there, and he does something so disgusting. He reaches into a dead, rotting carcass and eats what was in the middle of it unbelievable. He then goes on to have dinner and meet with this Philistine girl's family, and he feels the need to prove he's smarter than everyone. So he says, hey, I bet, I bet I can tell you a riddle that you can't guess the answer to, even if I let you all do it together. No way, you can have seven days to come up with the answer to this riddle. And here was the riddle, out of the eater, something to eat out of the strong, something sweet. Now, if you can guess that, I owe you 30 pieces of clothes. If you can't guess that, you owe me 30 pieces of clothes. I bet you can't guess, bet you can't guess, bet you can't guess. Of course they can't guess. He just made it up off the top of his head. Nobody else saw what he saw. So seven days, they can't guess. So here's what they do. 
they take his fiance and they say, hey, you're related to us. So what you need to do is you need to do whatever it is women do to get men to talk. So she goes and does that. He says, okay, I'll tell you, but you have to keep it between us. She says, sure. He tells her, she goes and tells her family. The last day they say, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? Well, Samson knows how they got this. And if you're one of these people that needs a life verse, you're always looking for a life verse, this is a direct quote from the book of Judges. Samson says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have never guessed that. <laughs> I love that. I love that. You plowed with my heifer. I know what you did. Right? right? So now, if you're following the story, Samson owes them 30 pieces of clothes. Now, instead of running down to the TK Maxx and saying, okay, you plowed with my heifer, you got me, Right? I now owe you 30 pieces of clothes. He doesn't do that. His response in that conflict was he went and killed 30 of their relatives, stripped them naked, and brought the clothes back and said, hey, I owe you 30 pieces of clothes. I just killed 30 of your relatives. Here's the clothes I owe you, right? Now, listen, that is a man that is out of control. Listen, when you lose a bet and your basic response is to kill 30 people, you are out of control. Listen, if you lose a bet today and your response is to kill 30 people, you will spend your rest of your life in jail. Back then, they wrote books about you. Huh, the world's getting a bit better. Now, this thing starts escalating, right? So Samson kills 30 of their relatives, right? They respond by giving his wife to somebody else. He then responds by tying foxes together and burning down their fields. They respond by burning the whole family with fire. He then responds by killing a thousand of them with the jawbone of a donkey. They then respond by capturing him, blinding him, and making him a slave. He then responds by pulling an entire building down on them. Are you following this? So what starts out as a joke no one understood escalated into everybody dying. This is how it worked. A joke no one understands, a heifer plowing, I don't know what it's to call that, a, uh, I kill 30 people to get you your 30 clothes. We respond by giving your wife away. I respond by burning your fields. I'll, we'll respond by burning an entire family to death. I'll respond by killing a thousand people. We'll respond by blinding you and enslaving you. Then I'll respond by pulling an entire building down on you. So what starts off a joke as a joke no one understands ends up with everybody dying. Now, if you're married, you understand how this works, right? So here's what happens. Have you ever had an argument with your spouse that started about how to cut a tomato, right? Right? Well, that ain't how my mom cuts it. Well, I ain't your mama. Well, she's huge. Right, right. So what starts out as an argument over how to cut a tomato ends up with insulting the other people's mother, right? Right? It's called the hostility cycle. Now, let, let me show you the key phrase in this. This is a, this is a passage from Judges, uh, from in, in that story. Let me show you this. Here we go. Um, I was so sure 
that you thoroughly hated her, that I gave her to your friend. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Women had no rights back then, by the way. Take her instead and watch Samson, watch his response. And Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I have a right to get even. I will really harm them. It gets worse. Watch this. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Clear intent to harm somebody, but I'm innocent because you hurt me first. You did something which gives me a right to harm you. That's the hostility cycle. It gets worse. Watch this. this. Then the Philistines said, who's done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he took his wife and gave her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Massive overreaction, right? Then watch Samson's reaction. Watch this. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. Oh, and then after that, I'll quit. In other words, once I get one up, at that point I'll stop. Here's the problem. If everybody feels that way, then eventually everybody dies. The cross and resurrection as a doctrine allows for that. But the cross and resurrection as a worldview does not allow us to think we are innocent in harming someone just because they came against us. That's the hostility cycle. The peacemaking cycle says, wait a minute, because Jesus acted first to make peace with me when I was hostile to God, I never ever have a right to intentionally harm anybody. I'll never be able to do that. According to the Australian Bureau of Criminal Statistics, 91% of all murders in Australia are morality-based. In other words, it's very rare in Australia for someone to walk into a bar and stab somebody. It's always, why did you kill that person? Well, if you knew what they did to me, you would know they deserved it. I'm actually innocent in regard to harming them because they harm me first. And this is what makes the cross and resurrection so radically different. The cross and resurrection says that for people who've embraced a God that says, while you were hostile to me, I acted first to make peace with you, that when we allow that to be our worldview, instead of just a bullet point on a pamphlet, what happens is, is we remove our right to harm anybody because they harmed us. That has no place in leadership, has no place in the kingdom of God, has no place in people who, who embrace the cross and resurrection, has no place in any of that. Now, a, a couple of observations about this. Next slide, yeah. So here's the hostility cycle. Hostility cycle works like this. One, there's an offense. Somebody criticizes how you cut a tomato. They don't like one of your sermons. Um, wh whatever the case may be, they come against your leadership, whatever the case may be. And you've got to balance then the, the balance of, wait a minute, how do I keep an organization with clear expectations and built-in accountability, but I don't increase a hostility cycle when someone's come against me? We don't do that either. How do we navigate that? So one, there's, a, there's an offense. Then there's the dehumanizing of the adversary. So this time I have a right because of what you did. Then there's an unwillingness to take responsibility for our part. At no point in the story does Samson go, you know what? I probably shouldn't have made up a riddle no one got. Hey, you know what? I probably shouldn't have eaten out of a dead thing anyway. Hey, you know what? When you got me, I probably shouldn't have killed 30 of your family members. My bad. Like, no, never ever did either side take responsibility. It was always because of what you've done, now I have a right. And that leads to escalation. 
That's how you get from a riddle no one understands to everybody dying. That's, that's how that works. And, and then you have, um, you have holding the other person responsible for the escalation. Well, it wouldn't have got this far if you wouldn't have done that. And since you've done that, now I have a right. It's like, it's like, it's like grown adults being six years old. Like, have you ever dealt with that in leadership? Have you ever been sitting in your office going, are you six? Like, like somebody told me once, and they thought I'd be impressed by this. Shane, I was listening to this preacher, and they said one thing I disagreed with, so I just walked out, and I won't listen to anything else they ever said. Are you nine? Listen, if you can't listen to someone that you don't, dis, that you don't agree with everything they say, you'll never grow. If you only read books you agree with before you started, what hope is there for us to grow? What is wrong with you? Are you kidding me right now? That is as immature as it gets. And by the way, by the way, leave the preachers alone, hey? Honestly. Do you know what preaching is? This is what it is. Preaching is spending 10 hours with four researchers to put together a talk that's gonna take 40 minutes to deliver so that someone who hasn't spent 10 seconds thinking about it can be a nameless, faceless plonker on the internet and degrade the person. Gosh. Then there's a failure to learn which leads to repeating the pattern. That's how hostility works. Which leads me to a few observations about what peacemaking and being seen as a child of God might look like. So the cross wasn't solely about forgiveness and freedom, but was also an end to hostility. That the cross was a physical manifestation of a new way to live. The most loving person acts first to end the hostility. Everybody else was in the wrong, but God acted first to end the hostility, which then removes any thought that we ever have a right to harm somebody. It doesn't mean you don't have a right to draw clear, non-violent boundaries. Like one of the Hebrew definitions of hell is a boundaryless place. In other words, if someone can just treat you however they want, you can't do anything about it. You don't wanna do that. It's not that, but it's never ever rationalizing a intent to harm as okay because they did something. Let, 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 let's, say, let's say it this way. Peacemaking is not passive. It's charging in with a different way and changing lives. Now, let's see if we remember, right? When Jesus said, don't just love your friends, but love those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. That was verse 43. It's Matthew 5, 43. It's actually the concluding sentence of a three-step thought that Jesus gave on peacemaking. So sometimes peacemaking, you could talk about it one way. Jesus used imagery. Let, let, me, let me show you this, right? So the first imagery was in Matthew 5, 39, four verses before 43. Here's what he says. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. So the idea is that we should be people who turn the other cheek. That is the opposite of hostility. If someone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other one, which leads me to this one. How are we doing with that? I am a child of God. Really? Are we? Do we turn the other cheek? If the world looked at how we handle conflict, would they go, okay, they turn the other cheek? What's, what's going, how serious are we gonna take Jesus? And what does that even mean? And does that work? 
Now, to understand turn the other cheek, we have to understand first century Roman class systems, okay? If you want a great history read on this, a, a Franciscan monk named Richard Rohr wrote a book called The Sermon on the Mount, and he does a great 45-page exegesis on first century Roman class systems. First century Rome had nine class systems. There's names for each one. For the sake of today, we'll just call them one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, okay? Now, to understand this, let me show you this. All right, there was a nine-layered class system. And there was a difference between left-handed slaps and right-handed slaps, okay? This is how it worked. If I was class two and you were class two and we challenged each other, I would hit you with my right hand because it was declaring you a social equal, right? But if I was class two and you were class eight, which by the way, Galilean peasants were class eight, if I was class two and you were class eight, I would never slap you with my right hand because that would be declaring you an equal. It would be saying, you, you, we, are, we are the same. I would always slap you with my left hand, essentially saying, you're so low class, you're not even worth my good hand. I'm gonna hit you with my left hand, because that's the hand I wipe my butt with. I'm gonna hit you with my poo-poo hand, right? It was that. Now watch, watch Jesus' language. If someone slaps you on your right cheek, hang on, think about that for a second. If I'm gonna slap someone on their right cheek, what hand would I use? My left. Essentially, Jesus is saying, if someone is declaring you as less than them, you turn the other cheek. In other words, you don't fight back, but what you do is you draw a clear nonviolent boundary that says, if we're gonna have this discussion, you will address me as an equal. You will turn the other cheek. Turning the other cheek has nothing to do with letting someone run over you. Turning the other cheek is drawing a clear boundary. Wait a minute, you're in my office, in my church, and you're yelling at me? Uh-uh. If we're gonna have this conversation, you will address me as an equal. We turn the other cheek. We turn the other cheek. And, and then he, now this is the next verse, very next verse, watch this. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. That's verse 40. So Jesus, here's how you, here's how you make peace. You turn the other cheek, you give your tunic and your cloak. Now, to understand this, we have to understand Levitical and Deuteronomy law. In Deuteronomy, if someone sued you and you couldn't pay, then you could give them your outer coat as a promise. Jesus says, if you can't pay, then give them your cloak as well, your inner cloak as well. Well, there's only two pieces of clothes. Here's what you gotta understand. That Galilee was an oppressed, inhabited um, region. They were occupied by a foreign military. And they were, uh, some historians estimate they were under 87% taxation. So 50% uh, of your grain, 30% of your fish, 12.5% tax to Caesar as the son of God, Roman roads taxes to move your product, as well as the dodginess of the tax collectors and the temple tax. Um, so these people, just to name a few, so, so these people were under, um, they were losing their family land that had been in their family since the book of Joshua, right? And there was a few 3% Roman sympathizers who were profiteering off the Roman occupation at the expense of the Galilean peasants. And then they were taking it a step further and they were suing these people who could not pay and their only recourse in Deuteronomy law was to give their outer coat. And people were actually doing it. Jesus is like, if someone's gonna demand that, just go ahead and give them all your clothes. Jesus is saying, here's how you handle that. Get naked, get naked. Which leads to all kinds of questions like, what? Right? Now, to understand this, to understand this, we've got to understand a couple things. 
In Hebrew culture, being naked is not shameful. Seeing nakedness is. So the man being sued is placing his shame on the other while being peaceful. Because what kind of person would take both cloaks? Uh, Essentially, it's this. It's here's how you make peace. You non-violently make people address you as equals. Secondly, you expose greed and oppression with massive generosity, not with fighting. That massive generosity overcomes greed, right? It's sort of like this. If I could be very simple with this. If you're sitting at dinner with a friend and the waiter comes over and says, how was everything? Great. Are you done? Yes. How are we dividing up the bill? If both of those people simultaneously, if one of them says, split it up, and the other one says, I'll take the whole bill, right? What will end up happening is both of them will end up fighting over who's gonna take the bill, even though the greedy man has already played all of his cards face up. What happens is, is the ultra generosity of the generous man exposes the greed for what it is. Jesus said, that's how you make peace. You overcome oppression with excessive generosity. You turn the other cheek. You give your tunic and your cloak. Next verse, watch what he says. And this is verse 41. And if anyone forces, forces, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, what is he talking about there? Now, to understand the first one, we gotta understand first century Roman class systems. To understand the second one, we have to understand Deuteronomy law. To understand this one, we have to understand first century Roman military law. The Galilean region was occupied by a foreign military. It was a foreign military. The Romans were horrendous to people. And what they would do is is they carried these 70-pound packs. Now, a Roman soldier was a class two person, and they were surrounded by class eight Galilean peasants. And they carried these 70-pound packs around. Now, if a Roman soldier has to walk somewhere, they're not going to carry their own 70-pound pack, 30 kilos. No way. What they're going to do is they're going to get one of these lowlifes to carry their pack for them. So the Roman military law allowed for that. It said that any Roman soldier could make a class 8 peasant carry their pack one mile. Thus, if someone forces you to go one mile, go two. This would have happened all the time in Galilee. But... Roman military law said that you could force someone to go one mile, but you could not force them to go more than, a wa- more than a mile because they wanted those people to go back to work to pay taxes. It would have been counterproductive. So Jesus says, if someone's forcing you to go one mile, go two. Why? Because if a Roman soldier made you go more than a mile, Roman military law said you would be docked a day's pay and court-martialed for it, right? So Jesus says, listen, if someone is going to force you to go one mile at the one mile mark, take off running. And you'll have a Roman soldier chasing you down to get you to stop because he's not going to lose his day's page. You can turn the whole thing around on them with uber generosity. In other words, get a small reputation for being a little bit crazy and they will leave you alone. This is genius stuff from a rabbi teaching people in an occupied territory how to live. How do we make peace? We turn the other cheek. We go the extra mile. We give our tunic and our cloak. That the cross is not simply about forgiveness. It is, we embrace that, but it's not simply that. The cross should not be something we believe in. 
The cross should be something that happened that fundamentally shifts the way we see all other happenings after that. And Paul says, people who really embrace the cross and resurrection also are the people who end hostility. Because God acted first when we were hostile, we should be the people acting first to make peace when someone's hostile to us. As leaders, our basic disposition in conflict is incredibly important to our leadership credibility long-term. You can be right but be wrong at the top of your voice. And I realize it's difficult to navigate the tension between clear expectations, built-in accountability, and making sure our demeanor and disposition is correct in conflict is enormous. But leaders who do this well, not perfectly, but leader, nobody would, but leaders who do this well increase their credibility in their organization long-term. Now, there's one more imagery from Jesus's life. Watch this. And that's to heal the ear, to heal the ear. There's this weird story from Jesus' um, life where he, he gets arrested. And, um, and it says that this guy named Malchus is leading the charge to arrest him. Um, Malchus is next in line to be the high priest. And, and Caiaphas didn't want to go get him himself, so he did what you do. You send the intern, right? You send the guy learning, right? And the Roman soldiers are there. And it's such a weird passage because what happens is, is, is that it says one of Jesus's disciples took out a knife and cut off the guy's ear, which leads to so many questions like, was that legal? Like, no one arrested Peter? Like, w- w- Peter chops off this dude's ear in front of the police and the police basic response was, oh, these crazy Jews. Like, it, it, it leads to all kinds of questions. Like, was that legal? And it leads to questions like, how did we know it was Peter? Right? We always say Peter. But Matthew just simply says a certain companion of Jesus. Mark says a certain friend of Jesus. Luke says one of Jesus' disciples. How do you know it's Peter? Because John said Peter did it, Right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke are like, let's keep this on the down low, shall we? John's like, let's throw Peter under the bus. No problem. (laughs) Now, to understand this, to understand why this was legal, it's all about who Malchus was. Here's the situation. There was a tension, a conflict, a hostility between the priests and the rabbis. Here's why. To be a rabbi, you had to earn it. 30 years of school, well, 24 years of school. Like, to, you, there's three people in the whole Bible called rabbi. Gamaliel, Paul, and Jesus. That's it. You had to earn it. To be a priest, you simply had to be born. And so there was this tension between we did our work and earned this, and you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth. There was this tension between them. And the question is, is if all a priest had to do to be a priest was be born, it, it, there was a risk of... A righteous man giving birth to an evil man, and that evil man has the same rights as priests. And you didn't want an evil man representing you before God, particularly in the Holy of Holies. So you had to have a way to disqualify people who you thought were evil. And they had a way. They used an obscure rule from Leviticus 21 on how to disqualify priests. This is a list of things that disqualify you from the priesthood from Leviticus 21. Here it is. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near. A man born blind or lame or one who has a mutilated face, 
Like, was that even, excuse me, sir, you are in line to be the next high priest, but your face is just a bit mutilated for our taste. I don't know how you lived back then. Or a limb too long. Sorry, one of your legs is longer than the other. Or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs. or crushed testicles, which leads to all kinds of questions like, was that actually a problem? Like, could you imagine that? Like, wouldn't you agree with me, that's a bad day? Like, hey, Bill, how was your week? Terrible. What happened? Those four guys over there helped me down and crushed my testicles with two bricks. You know what the worst part is? I can't be a priest no more. Man, that stinks. Like, honestly, can we agree together if four people hold you down and crush your testicles, whether you could be a priest or not, it's the last of your concern. <laughs> One other observation about this, wouldn't you agree with me that whoever was in charge of inspecting the priest, that's the worst job on earth? <laughs> Imagine that. Uh, mutilated face, not so much. Check, limb too long, they look okay. Is he a hunchback? Nope. A dwarf? Nope, sir, there's just this one more inspection. It's gonna be a little bit awkward for both of us, but you know. <laughs> no one of the offspring of Aaron, the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offering. Since he has a blemish, he can't draw near. So here's what they would do. You could read about this in several history books, but um, they would purposely give an evil man, a blemish. Uh, and what that would do is that would disqualify him. And, and the common practice was they would mutilate their ear. And, and let me explain that. They would hold him down, they would pierce the ear and pull. Now, it would hurt and you would get over it, but it would leave you uh, with this obvious public uh, blemish. And let's be honest, of all of their options, that's the easiest one. You don't want them choosing the whole crushed testicle option. And so what they would do, the reason it was legal for Peter to mangle this man's ear was because he was the priest. And my, my Sunday school teacher taught me that Peter was trying to kill him and missed. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Think, think about it. Like, if I'm trying to cut your head off and I hit you in your ear hole, that's a direct hit. What more than likely happened is Peter came up behind him and just flicked his ear off. Now, here's what's important. What was Jesus's response to that? He put his ear back on his head, not only healing him, but restoring him back to the priesthood of the temple. Peter's response is, hey, you're fixing to kill the real temple? Then you have no right serving in the temple made with the hands of men. And I'll make sure you never do that again. And he gives him a blemish. Jesus' response was what? Put your sword away. If you live that way, you'll die that way. If you make a living finding reasons to disqualify people, then at some point, you'll be held to that same standard yourself. Listen to me. The church of Jesus Christ should always be a culture of ear repairers, never ear cutters. And listen to me, listen to me. There will be times when despite all of your efforts, they're not going to receive your restoration effort. And in that case, simply walk away. But you never intentionally harm people. And, and listen, listen, 
people all over, and this is why this is so important. A lot of churches from all over the world are recognized here, or represented here. Listen to me. Next Sunday, 10, 20, 30, 40 people are gonna come into your church for the first time. And they don't know how to say it, but somebody took their ear off. Somebody said, you did something so bad, God will never use you. Somebody said, hey, because of this, ear lopped off. Somebody, somebody has disqualified people. And if the church of Jesus Christ is gonna be compelling in our generation, then we have to be known as sons of God. How are we known as that? We're peacemakers. How do you do that? You say, listen, of all the places you can come in this world, the church of Jesus Christ is the place committed to get your ear back on your head. We don't give people life sentences around here. We are committed to whatever process necessary to make sure your ear is back on your head. The church of Jesus Christ should never be be a place of ear cutting, but also always a place of ear repairing. How are we peacemakers? We turn the other cheek. We go the extra mile. We give our tunics and our cloaks. And we make sure we always make a way to put people's ears back on their head. If they walk away from that, then they walk away. But ears should be on heads. Now, great teaching is not meant to be agreed with, nor disagreed with. Like if all you got from today is, I love that I agreed with him, I failed. Or if you walk away going, I hated that I disagreed, I also failed. Great sermons, great teaching is meant to be wrestled with. It's meant to be life-changing. So let's ask a few questions. Next one. Have we received the cross that forgives us while rejecting the cross that ends hostility? Like where have we received the cross that says, okay, we get saved, we get to go to heaven when we die, we're forgiven, there's no debt. But then we've rejected the part of the cross that says, because God acted that way to you, you're meant to be a peacemaker with others. Let's say it this way. Is there any place that we're escalating violence right now? Somebody's just gotta say, stop it. Where do we need to act first and be a peacemaker? Maybe there's a conflict in your marriage right now and it's on this crazy cycle of da 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 And somebody's got to act first. Somebody's got to be the more mature one to go, hey. Somebody, somebody's got to be the guy in Israel going, peace between us is the most important thing. Um, let's say it this way. Whose ear do we need to repair? Is there anyone we've taken their ear off and it's high time we made sure they understood that there was at least a process to get their ear back on. And now if they still walk away, they walk away, but hey, how can we get your ear back on your head? How can we make this right? Jesus gave his life for us. What's our offering back to him? Maybe we could say this one last way. What if the cross was God saying, how far do I have to go for you all to get along? No one was more hostile to God than the human race. And God acted first to end hostility. How far do I gotta go for you? So my brothers and sisters of shout, may you not just be people who have the cross and resurrection as a bullet point on a pamphlet, but may the cross and resurrection be the fundamental event that shifts the way you see your whole world. May we respond to the love of Jesus in our leadership by making sure that our basic disposition and conflict would lead the outside world to saying those are sons of God. Those are children of God. I don't know who's right or who's wrong, but my goodness, they're children of God. That's a child of God right there. That's a child of God. That's it. That's what I'm talking about. That's a child of God. Thank you so much for letting me be part of your afternoon. Listen, I, I hope, um, thank you. I hope that um, I, I didn't have a clock up here. And when I heard the piano playing, I was like, uh oh, oh. Um, so I hope I didn't go over too long. And if I did, 
peace between us is the most important thing. If one of us needs to be wrong, let it be me. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless.